Welcome to Radio Free Bay Ridge, your hyper-local progressive podcast broadcasting from beautiful Bay Ridge, Brooklyn. Today, we're bringing you part five of our seven-part Congressional Contender series. As primary season begins to wind up, we're going to sit down and chat with all the candidates in the Democratic primary for New York's 11th District, the currently Republican-controlled House of Representatives district that covers Staten Island and South Brooklyn, including our own Bay Ridge. The district, even this early on, is beginning to lean more and more into toss-up territory each day, and it's vital that we progressives get familiar with our possible candidates and get a feel for who we might want to donate our time and support towards in the upcoming race. The series is a long-format sit-down with each candidate, where we ask them to go into detail on educating you, their potential volunteers and supporters, not only about themselves and their ideas, but also the issues behind those ideas and what policy areas they think you should be aware of going into this next election cycle. Today, my co-host Rachel and I are sitting down with Max Rose. Welcome, Max. Oh my God, thank you so much for having me. It's great um, to have you here, yeah. Yeah, can I kind of just say it's great to get an hour or two to get in the weeds. Nice. There's, there's not enough of this. That, thank you both so much for doing yeah, this. No, it, it's, it's really amazing. Anytime. So I guess let's start off with the basics. Who are you? Why, <laughs> why are you here? <laughs> what are you doing in my house? Who is this guy? <laughs> so yeah, Max Rose um, running for Congress. Uh, which I guess makes me, you know, I, we just had our kickoff rally oh, yesterday. Nice. Um, yesterday. Awesome packed room, like 150 people. And I started off by acknowledging my folks who were there, had my sister stand up. She was mortified because she's the fourth generation woman in my family to be earning her postgraduate degree from a New York City university. Ah, nice. What's she studying? Education psychology. She's, nice, getting, her, nice. she's, getting, her, she's getting her PhD. Which makes my you know my mother so proud. My mom's yeah. a professor at Burr Manhattan Community College, but my fiance Lee was not there because she's actually down. She's a, a fashion stylist and she's working on a shoot in Florida. And I, I joke that she has to support her unemployed, <laughs> her unemployed fiance running for office. So um, most people don't realize just how much it takes to yeah. just to decide to run. Yeah. No, it, and it's really and and I I really tip my hat off to the other folks running as yeah. well. And it is unbelievable. You know, it's part startup, mm. especially in this day and age. Politics is changing so much. It's a part digital startup and a, a part field startup. And um, it's really an all hands on deck endeavor, but we're having it at the time of our lives. So yeah, my, I, I live on Staten Island in, in St. George. I, as many right people, off the ferry. <laughs> yeah, as many people know, I'm a, currently still a, a company commander in mm -hmm. the National Guard, been, been in the Army for eight years. Mm -hmm. And previous to this, I was actually a, a healthcare executive. Um, oh, wow. And previous to that, a, a special assistant and, and director of public engagement for Ken Thompson, who we, uh, we lost far too soon, mm -hmm. Brooklyn, Brooklyn's first African-American district attorney. Um, and, you know, I think back to... Uh, when I interviewed for my healthcare job. And I, I like to think that I'm pretty good at interviewing, right? You know, I came in there with confidence. <laughs> and my tie was looking just good and it circled the table. There's about eight people around a really nice conference table. And I, I felt like I was knocking it out of the park. And then the CEO looked at me and goes, okay, what are your hobbies? And I'm like, oh, oh my God. <laughs> Wait, I need hobbies oh, too? Oh my God. Like, I, 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 you want me to have hobbies? Working so, hard. You know, <laughs> um, but I am a, I'm an avid reader. 
Um, we were just joking, the three of us, about Infinite Jest downstairs, one of the hardest, hardest books. Oh, yeah. <laughs> David Foster Wallace will frustrate people for, for centuries, but um, any chance I get, I, I read. And, you know, it was so funny because actually in basic training, you are not allowed to bring books with you. What? The, really? the only books Why? that you can bring are religious texts. Right, right. Um, Protected. <laughs> I remember I showed up at basic training. And when you get there, they, they do this big thing where like the drill sergeants come with their hats and they dump out all your stuff to make sure there's no contraband. And I had a copy of Dostoevsky's Brothers Karamazov. Right, right. <laughs> and, and, and <laughs> As try, you do. And I try like... Try engaging in like some philosophical debate with a drill sergeant about the fact that this is a religious text to some people, you know? Uh, so um, so what, what me and my mother did, oh God, and now this is going to be made public. We, <laughs> she, <laughs> in her letters, she would put long form articles as a oh, part of her letters. Nice. Um, and so the drill sergeants, oh my God, your mom's sending you these 25 page <laughs> letters. You have the most diligent mother in the world, but there would be New Yorker articles oh, and foreign wow. policy oh, articles, that would and be um, perfect. I, uh, but um, <laughs> smuggling in literature, <laughs> it, 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 it brings me back a little bit. And, Ever subversive New Yorker. That's right. We always figure out a way. That's we, great. We, that's we great. always figure out a way. <laughs> One of the biggest problems I find today is that we look at each issue in a silo. Right. You know, today we're going to talk about infrastructure and tomorrow we're going to talk about health. And then the next day we'll talk about criminal justice reform. And we don't as often talk about the ways in which all of these issues are so interrelated. It's clear as day what we're trying to do as a country. Mm -hmm. We want as many people as possible to have the opportunity to get into the middle class, have the opportunity to pursue their dreams, mm -hmm. reach their full potential, exist in a truly fair world. And everything webs out from that really macro vision. I, I, I often say our, our two most potent resources today are human capital and infrastructure. We have always just got to come back to that. You know, when I returned from active duty, a young man took a chance on me. His name was Ken Thompson. Mm -hmm. And I, I just, it, it puts a smile on my face talking about him because he um, was not only a great guy with this huge smile he used to say, you know, don't don't let the zoot suits fool you, Max. I'm a I'm not always a liberal guy, you know. Don't 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 let the zoot suits fool you. But what Ken <laughs> what Ken did is he was so courageous with his campaign, and then he was so courageous as a policymaker too. And he understood that when you're looking at public safety, that's as holistic as it gets. You know, if you try to evaluate the reasons why some communities are underserved and some communities aren't safe and some communities have not gotten a fair shake from the criminal justice system. If you don't also talk about mental health, public health disparities, if you don't also talk about jobs, then you're, you're doing the issue a disservice because all, all of these things are part of prevention. What's fascinating is that this wasn't the first time that I heard this. You know, when I enlisted in the army, I did so at the height of the counterinsurgency movement. Now we're starting to forget about it, but the army underwent this unbelievable radical transformation. And it was led by, you know, they joked, you know, PhDs who could win a bar fight. Guys like David Petraeus. And in the span of just a year, they developed Field Manual 
24, which is their counterinsurgency manual. It's the mm-hmm. first, and I think to this day, the only army field manual that has a bibliography. If you want any hope of pacifying very complex places like Afghanistan and Iraq, if you leave the tools of economic development and diplomacy at home and public health at home, you don't stand a chance. And the same thing is true here at home. The same exact yeah. thing. Yeah. And, and I think that's one of the most fascinating experiences in life. When you do something like jump from the army, because I, I transitioned from active to the National Guard, and then you jump to working in criminal justice reform, and you see a, a threat. And, and then I jump to public health, and that thread persists. And, and that's, that, that, I think, is, you know, if you were to ask me, what, what is the, the most fascinating thing to you today? It's just that. Is, is how there's underlying root causes. Right, and the universality of those causes. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. There was a time in this country where this was the point of focus. Hmm. You know, we all read that, that um, long New York Times piece on the subway system mm-hmm. uh, about a month ago, I think. And they were talking about how the New York City subway system with no zones and no closing time, mm-hmm. this interconnected web that pushed people into Manhattan and then got them out quickly, was really an engine of the growth of the middle class in this city. I do feel like there was a time in this country where, where we were more cognizant of all of this. And uh, the Interstate Highway Act yeah. is, is another great example. You know, originally it had this national security impetus to it. Oh yeah, rapid mobilization. Right, and people often forget too is that education funding was the same way. The, the first time the federal government funded education was called the National Education Defense Act mm. and in response to Sputnik. But we understood from a national security standpoint that if we don't compete in the education race, we don't stand a chance. For some reason, in looking at national security issues, being holistic has made more sense. Yeah. In the 50s, we basically said that if we want to keep ourselves safe, we have to build an interconnected system of bridges and roads, and we have to educate people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, that doesn't just apply to national security. It applies to a whole host of other issues too. Public health being a really a yeah, critical yeah, one. Yeah. And public safety. When you look at Bright Point Health, Bright Point started 28 years ago now as a nursing home for HIV AIDS patients. And it was a institution of last resort for not just HIV AIDS patients, but the hardest to treat HIV AIDS patients. So we're talking about like the early 90s as well, right? Exactly. So these folks were homeless. All of them had multiple comorbidities, diabetes, mental health issues. Just to contextualize, you know, we do have a lot of younger listeners who may not realize coming out of the 80s and into the 90s was the height of the HIV crisis. um, And there were not services like that available. No, that this was the first of its kind. There was this incredible crisis. And no one even understood its causes, but it was all hands on deck. And there was this decision that every echelon of government is going to do something about this. Bright Point emerged from that drive to fix a problem. And what its mission was, was to f- treat the whole person. If you want to address HIV AIDS, you got to address mental health. You have to address all of these wraparound issues. Yeah. And over the course of more than a quarter of a century, what Bright Point has done is first it said, we're not just going to now do that for HIV AIDS patients. We're going to also do that for homeless people. And then it said, we're not just going to do this for homeless people on an inpatient basis. We're going to do this for everybody on an outpatient basis. So when you walk into one of our clinics, the goal is not to just say, oh, you're here for that primary care issue. 
the goal is to say, well, let's make sure that you also see a mental health specialist on site if you need to. Let's also make sure that you see a care manager who can deal with housing issues or employment issues. And this is not just the right thing to do. This saves a tremendous amount of money. Every, every single time that you get at the root of someone's problem, it is far less likely that they're going to show up at the ER. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's far less likely that, they're going to show, that there's going to be an avoidable hospital admission. And you know what? It's also far less likely that they're going to commit a crime. It's, and it's far more likely that they're going to get employed. Everything is interconnected here. Everything. It's, and it's just a joy to be able to do the right thing and the smart thing at the same time. Because think about, you know, preventative care. How much would a preventative care visit cost versus a emergency visit? $200 versus about $4,000. Right, <laughs> right. Exactly. And, you know, the, the system, though, today, but the Democrats are at fault for this. I could never assert that there's any type of equivalency right now. Democrats have not enough looked at the cost issue as well. Mm. Not looked enough at the fact that our system is riddled with perverse incentives. Mm. Where you got these hospitals, which no matter what you talk about with the rhetoric, they're trying to fill hospital beds because that's what's reimbursed at a high level. Even more so sometimes they get reimbursed for doing a second surgery when the first one doesn't go as it should. Now, I'm not asserting that anyone's doing the wrong thing here, but we've got to align incentives with people's health. Yes. And link up all the nodes on the continuum of care so that when you prevent that ER admission, when you prevent that hospital admission or readmission, people are getting properly reimbursed as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think that that could build a much better system in the long term. Yeah. One of the things I've noticed is a lot more conversation about doctors being paid on a salaried basis rather than on a per service basis. Sure. And and that seems like it's maybe just the tip of the iceberg. Oh, definitely. And I think that even more so, a lot of healthcare institutions today are actually bonusing doctors on their outcomes, which is a good thing. The direction that we need to push is away from this fee-for-service system, you know, fill them and bill them, you see 35 or 30, but rather, did you get that colorectal screening correct? It's not just the 15-minute doctor visit. You know, it, we, we had this group, and it, this is one of the... the greatest honors of my life mothers against gun violence Mm -hmm. that we partnered with and led by this you know my good friend natasha who lost her son um to an act of gun violence uh more than five years ago and what natasha built is this group of 50 women um coming from brooklyn and staten island and the bronx and even new jersey who get together once a month and seek each other's support and so what we did at Brightpoint is we started a partnership with them and the 67th Precinct Clergy Council. What we made is a commitment to them. We are going to support every meeting you have with, you know, the basics, food and things like that. Provide you with a trained counselor to lead your sessions. Beyond that, we're going to provide you with a truly VIP concierge service so that you, amidst all the stress that you have to endure, I can't even imagine you'll know that you won't have to deal with those, you know, 15-minute, 20-minute wait times. Let's get your mental health and your primary care appointment on the same day. Mm -hmm. Let's get you a care manager who can help navigate, you know, through this labyrinth of services at the local, state, and federal level. It is still such a joy to see these women who are just so strong. I'd like to see more of that from government. 
So how do we get more of that from government? Where is Staten Island situated now? And how can we improve that at the congressional level? Sure. So, you know, the I go back to what we did at the height of the HIV AIDS epidemic. And what we did is that there was a call to arms when it came to prevention, treatment, as well as education. If this were 1965 and we were wrapping up this podcast and let's go for a drive, each of us would be smoking a cigarette and none of us would be wearing a seatbelt. Yeah. Mm. The only reason that changed was because of education. And we need to do the same with the opioid epidemic. You won't solve this in a year, but it's got to be a concerted push that involves not just our schools, but it involves non-governmental organizations, community leaders, every echelon of government. So that's, that's step number one. In addition, though, we really, really need to look at outpatient and inpatient treatment. For many people, medically assisted treatment is the answer. We don't have enough practitioners who are certified to administer medically assisted treatment. When you're saying medically assisted treatment, is that like methadone or... or no, no. So uh, What are we thinking about uh, that? Suboxone would be oh, a, mm-hmm. a, a, a big example of that. And it's not the answer for everyone. There's no silver bullet here. Mm-hmm. But what it basically does is help to wean someone off of their opiate addiction. Yeah. There are serious problems with how hard it is for people to get certified, mm-hmm. nurse practitioners and doctors, yeah. um, to administer these treatments. Part of this problem has been unnecessarily criminalized, too. Mm. Yeah. This is a medical issue. I was honored to help start the first 24-7 recovery center on Staten Island in partnership with Staten Island District Attorney's Office to push people to recovery rather than the criminal justice system. We just have to be smart here and treat the whole person. The reasons why someone gets addicted to opioids are as diverse as the reasons why someone enters the criminal justice system. There's housing issues. There's employment issues. There's mental health issues. And we have got to make sure that people have the opportunities for treatment for each of those issues. We, we have to. So we spoke about outpatient care. We spoke about inpatient care. We spoke about education. There is a prevention piece to it. I think that the prevention piece covers two different points. First, there's prescription drugs, which is just clear as day. For 30 years, companies like McKesson and Purdue have been falsely marketing these drugs. When we speak about prevention and law enforcement, you got to focus on the prescription drugs and you got to focus on the fact that they are flooding our communities both with doctors overprescribing and false advertising and distributors not acting in the way they should, and quite frankly, Congress passing legislation that handcuffs the DEA to go after the distributors, which by the way was passed on a bipartisan basis because our legislators all too often fail to read legislation before they pass it. Um, It'd be nice to have someone who likes reading in government. Congressmen are supposed to read what yeah. they vote. Are they supposed to like remember it? Because I remember a conversation with Donovan where that didn't happen. Yeah. And, and <laughs> not, not only should members of Congress read it, they should especially read it when we know that special interests are writing mm. the legislation, as mm. they did in this instance when the DEA was handcuffed, which is why not to make this too political. I am honored that I'm not taking a cent of corporate PAC money. And we actually just uh, <laughs> did a short video on this. We had our first instance where a corporate PAC did reach out to us mm. and try to do so. It was one of the proudest moments of my, uh, my life to direct them to Dan Donovan or Michael Grimm, who, <laughs> I, who I know will be happy, happy customers. But we still have the problem of heroin. And we've got to work in partnership with the police department on this. We've got to work in partnership with our district attorney's offices, uh, which 
you know, it's fantastic that Mike McMahon has started to treat each instance of an OD, whether the person died or not, as a criminal incident. A criminal incident where you can trace where they got the drug, you can trace where they got the prescription pills if those were involved, bring in healthcare institutions, bring in the NYPD, bring in the DA's office, and work together to figure out how we can prevent this from happening again. There's patterns here. Yeah, absolutely. There's always going to be patterns, but this crisis is affecting, you know, we just heard our friend Marty Golden say, it's not a, it's not a ghetto drug. Oh thanks. boy. Thanks, Marty. Um, and, and if it was, he would be reacting yeah. differently. <laughs> it's, you know, it's affecting doctors, kids too, as well. The truth of the matter is since the 21st century began, we've lost more than a half a million people to this epidemic, which is nearly as much, if not more than we lost from all of our nation's wars in the 20th century combined. When you think about it, I think that it's over 1,500 deaths in New York City last year. I might be wrong on that stat, but let's say it's over 1,000 even. If we had said that there was a gang that murdered over 1,000 New Yorkers last year. Dan Donovan would be on that like white on rice. He would be on Air Force One to give a talk in Long Island. If we had said that there was a virus Mm -hmm. that killed over 1,000 people last year. We would be on it. But instead, what we see in response to this problem is just rhetoric. You know, it's like, show me the money. What's that with Jerry Maguire? You know? Where's you the legislation? To, you, you have got to put resources in front of this problem. It's just like any other problem. If you don't direct resources to it and you don't put the full force and energy of the government and nonprofits and the private sector, and community. If you don't put everything behind this, we don't stand a chance. Um, and people are dying. When we talked a little bit about like Medicare for All and universal health care, and this is another thing that if we had that, people could get counseling, they could get treatment, they could get you know all this. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating. You know, there was just an editorial in the Wall Street Journal today. They're now saying Medicaid expansion has helped to fuel the opioid epidemic. Oh boy. And <laughs> here's the process of deduction. What they say is that by giving more people health care, you are giving them access to more prescription drugs. And then you're getting more people addicted to prescription drugs, which gets more people addicted to heroin. Now, I, I just love gymnastics. <laughs> um, but I know the, every time I go to the doctor, I stick my hand in the cupboard and grab some yeah, Percocet. But what, what I will tell you is, is that what access to health care gets you is access to mental health treatment. Substance mm-hmm. abuse treatment, primary care, care management, things that don't only prevent you from getting addicted, but help you get all, wean yourself off the addiction. And then furthermore, they help you become a thriving member of society. And so that's a losing argument in every way, shape, and form. But I give it to them for trying. This is complicated because there's a danger to this argument that I'm making too. When you start talking about holistic policy prescriptions, you got to ask, where's the end? You know, it's easy to say to every problem, you say, I want to throw this and I want to throw that and I want to throw this. That's why a huge focus of mine is making sure that government acts in an efficient way. That we look at waste, that we look at fraud, that we look at abuse. And that also goes for the upper crust of society ripping off the government as well, not paying their taxes like they should be so we don't have the resources that we would otherwise have. 
because that's been a mistake that's made in the past. We analyze the problem we, and we understand what we have to do and then we throw solutions at the problem, but we don't evaluate it. That would never fly in anything else. Um, and we shouldn't let it fly in government either because we won't always do the right thing at first and we need to be able to be versatile. Now, the problem is though, is that Congress today is, can't get their act together to pass a budget. So, so everyone, thinks about these, everyone thinks about these continuing resolutions. And they're like, who cares? What's the big, what's the big yeah, deal? For three weeks. Right. <laughs> you know, but the problem with these CRs is that it takes a snapshot of government and then it says, we're going to keep this going. Think about what that does to national security, for instance. If you have CRs for six months, the world could change dramatically. You could have new terrorist organizations arising. You could have the North Korea's nuclear program could advance far, far more than we expected. And we are not able to move money from one bucket to the next at all. It silos everything off. It silos off. everything. It's utterly disgusting. It's horrifying. And I, I do think back to the soldiers I served with. And I think back to if they didn't get the job done, that was someone's life. You would hope that there'd just be that same level of commitment in Washington, D.C. I think that the threats that we face, mm-hmm. and by the way, I... Amongst the national security threats that we face, I got to include global warming and hyperpartisanship. It threatens the future of our country. It's not something that's cute anymore. I remember reading the Republican Party a certain time ago became a movement rather than a party demanding ideological purity, and that the Democratic Party was, you know, maybe a year or two away from the same fate. The debate and the agreements and the ideas are set, and it's just about fighting to get those ideas into power. It's it's hard because you know everyone likes the idea of compromise until it comes to their issue that they care about. There are also, and and this might be kind of the far lefty progressive view, but there are absolutes. You can't argue that some things are moral or not moral, without a doubt. There are good ideas and there are bad ideas, yeah. <laughs> and again, it's about studying what ideas work, and if they do, let's keep going. I mean, universal health care started off as a Republican thing that was that, that we analyzed. And <laughs> the ACA was taken right out of the Heritage Foundation yeah. playbook in so many ways. It was a private sector solution. Yeah. One that, may I add, works in other countries. A place like Switzerland, they achieve universal health care with basically expanded ACA. That's the point that I think I'm, I'm trying to make here is as you look at all these challenges that we face, whether it's crumbling infrastructure, whether it's widening inequality, all of these national security threats that we just listed, everybody in Congress agrees that those are challenges. If you had just a debate about what are the problems that we face, they would all say that that's, that's the list, guys. Now, uh, but then they, they just refuse to do anything about it. The criminal justice system we've touched on really briefly yeah. and occasionally, like that's another thing that just needs like holistic reform. Well, and Staten Island is kind of on the front lines of some of that. In, in a way, I think every community is is really on the front lines of it in so many ways. And this is something that people really deeply care about. Also something, by the way, that there's tremendous bipartisan potential for. We've seen Cory Booker and Ted Cruz and Rand Paul really get together on this mm. um, and then have it. It's stifled at other levels. First off, and I, I had an editorial in Forbes magazine over a year ago now hmm. um, with a guy named Mark Lucas, who's on the opposite side of the political spectrum as I am, but he's a friend and he's a fellow vet, uh, saying that we need to look at some of these mandatory minimums for nonviolent offenses. 
Mm-hmm. We need to look at the Rockefeller laws at the New York state level, but we have to look at you know privatization of prison construction. As we look at these issues, we are ever cognizant of people's public safety mm-hmm. and community's public safety and supporting law enforcement. The two are not mutually exclusive. That's not what this is about. But if we don't look at making sure that people understand that the criminal justice system is there for everyone, and that is equal, and it is just, and it is fair, then we've failed. We have failed. You know, we, we spoke earlier about this conviction review unit that, that Ken Thompson built um, that has now spread throughout the country, um, that I believe that we should have something to that effect in every jurisdiction in, in America, because there's certainly people who are behind bars today, thousands for crimes they did not commit. There could be a myriad of reasons why that's the case. Mm-hmm. You could have detectives lying. That's true, and that's happened. But you could also just have police officers made a mistake. The prosecution made a mistake. Evidence was not available at the time. There's new technologies that are... What's great about the Conviction Review Unit is that it was not adversarial. They weren't trying to jam up police officers, jam up yeah. prosecutors for previous cases. They are just trying to free innocent people. And in the process, folks who used to not think that the system was there for them now could potentially start to change their mind. And that, I believe, makes them more likely to approach police officers if they have knowledge of a crime. That, I believe, makes people more likely to call a police officer in the event of an act of domestic abuse or domestic violence. That's in the interest of police officers. They have no interest in walking into a community that doesn't trust them. That makes them less safe, not more safe. And I felt the exact same way when I patrolled a very, very rural part of Afghanistan. I felt the exact same way. I think that we can walk this fine line here, but there's got to be trust all around. The law enforcement community has to trust that we are acting with the modicum of their interests at heart. The same with underserved communities that have had High levels of police concentration for a long time. And guess what? Those high levels of police concentration were attached to the fact that there were high levels of public safety incidents there. That's not contradictory. It's not at all. It's an issue near near and dear to my heart. And I think we have a ton of room for a bipartisan consensus around this. That doesn't leave members of the law enforcement community feel like we're throwing them under the bus. It doesn't leave communities of color feeling like we're just throwing them symbolic actions. You mentioned the conviction review unit. I mean, isn't that something that like the appeals process should technically already cover? Sure. How does how does Let's that work? Let's get in the weeds. Um, so here's how the conviction review unit worked. Even after an appeals process is exhausted, innocent men and women can still be in prison. They will then, many of them, still reach out. And what, what was amazing about this conviction review unit is that we, we've heard about these things for decades. But they largely relied on DNA evidence. And they were, you know, a one-person staff, in, 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 often in, in partnership with folks like the Innocence Project, right? yeah. which is entirely based around DNA. What Ken did instead is Ken made an incredibly substantive investment in this. 10 to 12 prosecutors, just as many detectives, support staff, who did an incredible deep dive into these cases. They didn't just look at the files. 
that the detectives flew to 20 different states to actually go to the crime scenes to re-interview people. And the instances were unbelievable. They went down, I'm forgetting it now, North Carolina, something like that, Georgia, to interview a woman who was the principal witness in a case and she admitted that she lied. (sighs) They re-looked at the evidence in another case and found out that a man who was convicted of murder and who claimed the entire time that he was in Disneyland, that there was a receipt. Oh. Wow. So this is really looking at kind of redoing investigations. uh, They are getting so in-depth. And they're not trying to figure out necessarily who committed the crime. They are also not necessarily trying to say it was the prosecutor's fault. It was the detective's fault. They are just trying to restore justice and fairness in this system. Because we go back to the 80s, 700, 800, 900, 1300 murders in this country, in this city. Prosecutors were busy. Prosecutors made mistakes. There's a prosecutorial culture where they were highly competitive. Everyone wants to talk about their conviction rate. Police officers make mistakes. Technology changes. You know, we we discussed some of that earlier, but they would do an incredible deep dive. As a result, tens of people, they're actually all men at this point, were released from prison. But it's not just about those individuals and that that would be enough. Yeah. Don't don't get me wrong, but it's about the message that it sends to communities. That the, the criminal justice system is there for them too. They understand that police officers make their communities safer. Um, but there's still a pervasive sense that there's an unfairness and there's an implicit bias and it's, it's backed up by statistics and that, that does not mean that police officers as a whole are not doing their job. They're, many of them are my friends and I consider myself a member of the law enforcement community as a captain of the National Guard. And we've seen this program replicated throughout the country. We helped organize an, a conviction review summit We had district attorneys come from all around the the country and learn about this, learn about the root causes of wrongful convictions, which could be, you know, I I mentioned many of them, many of them earlier. And then what happens is that you can learn how to prevent them. Prosecutors, whereas they formally, district attorneys, whereas they formally said that this was a sign of strength, I'm not starting a conviction review unit. There are no. We are a hundred percent certain. Now it's a sign of strength yeah. to do that. Yeah. It's a sign of strength to to start one of these yourself, and it and it draws an incredible amount of attention. Chicago, L.A., San Francisco, um, Dallas, um, and we we could see the same with cold case units. We could see the same with uh, immigrant fraud units. We are able to make sure that people understand that the system is there for them. That is what I I consider Ken's legacy to be. And don't think that this didn't come without risks. You know, we remember the Willie Horton ad. Michael Dukakis, as the governor of Massachusetts, has a furlough program and someone gets out and commits rape and then there's a Bush administration runs a commercial against them and they just ran it once, I think. Um, and, and everyone it, else picked it up. And, um, and uh, plenty of dog whistles in there, but nonetheless, Dukakis loses. There was every potential in the world that and there still is, that someone could get let out of prison for you know a crime they did not commit and commit another crime, and it would be a political liability. And Ken was very much aware of that, but he understood that producing results 
was far more important than the, co- the political consequences. Well, in terms of political capital, it's kind of shocking to think that somebody could be cleared of any wrongdoing and released, and then because they did something else, that would come back on the person who said, "Oh no, he was innocent." Politics <laughs> can be a cat. Politics can be a tough yeah, game, yeah. Uh, but um, nonetheless, that was that was a real liability. And he brought in, you know, a great guy named Ron Sullivan from Harvard to uh, to advise him, um, who's a, a leader in the field. Took the person who led more murder convictions than any other prosecutor in, the, I believe, in the history of the, in the homicide borough, Mark Hale, put him in charge of the wrongful conviction unit. This guy had been in the office for thirty years, and talk about prioritizing something that can completely change the conception of the criminal justice system. So, can I ask how did they select the cases that they would pursue? There was no one answer to that, and then there remains no one answer to that. They it, it is everything from a, a letter to their own investigations to one instance uh, involving a guy named Detective Scarcella, where there was a string of malfeasance. They did a deep dive into his cases, and that the New York Times has covered that. Now, what I do believe, though, is that the, this is something that the Justice Department should get involved in. At the federal level, there is no funding to support local district attorney's office to establish wrongful conviction units um, or conviction review units. There's no, there's no funding for that. And this is small money we're talking about here. Small money. And there's, there's currently federal funding to support on the other side, on the defense side, to advocate for this. But there's, there's no justice funding. To the best of my knowledge, I'd love yeah. it if one of your listeners corrected yeah. me. But um, for what we're talking about, you know, in the low millions, mm-hmm. we could free thousands of people. You know, now we do know that the other side can't blame the deficit because um, they, they had no problem adding $1.5 trillion to it for giveaways to folks who did not need it. And so this, this would have been a, and I still believe it remains, a really smart way that we could have helped ensure that thousands of people who are wrongfully convicted could be, or potentially thousands, I don't yeah. know the number. Maybe it's hundreds, maybe it's tens. But, but it doesn't someone. matter. It's about fairness and justice, again, not the stats. That saying about, you know, better a guilty man go free or, you know, a hundred guilty men go free than one innocent person stay in jail. That principle in some ways is at the core of our system. On the same hand, you know, we, what was great about what I believe that Ken's legacy is that at no point did he say, I'm going to sacrifice people's public safety. Mm-hmm. At right. no point. He, he started a crime strategies unit with the help of the Manhattan District Attorney's Office mm-hmm. that said that basically the vast majority of violent crime in Brooklyn, um, and this is true throughout the city, is led by a very, very, very exactly. small percentage of people of, who, of whom Repeat they offenders. Uh, And we know their names and we know the gangs that they're a part of and we need to make sure that we are actively going after them. And when they interact with the criminal justice system for even a small thing, we make sure that we're building intelligence and we're using the full weight of the law um, to make sure that we keep people safe. Um, That type of intelligent policing that can win trust and uh, ensure public safety is the future of not only community policing, but I go back to the counterinsurgency strategies um, that completely transformed the American military in a very short period of time. That was a fundamental tenet of that too. And the, the army didn't always do a good job and there's mistakes and, but there was a philosophical principle behind it. So um, this is an effort. Um, so one of the things we talked about earlier was transportation and how that doesn't necessarily mean the same thing in Staten Island that it means in the rest of the city. It doesn't necessarily mean the same thing in South Brooklyn as the rest of the city. 
Want to give us some thoughts sure, on that? Sure. So, you know, it's so funny when we talk about transportation because we always imagine, we always think about Staten Island as going to Manhattan, but Staten Islanders want to go from the South Shore to the North Shore too and have it yeah, take, you know, be, internal. Be, 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 yeah. be a quick experience as well. And and to continue the thread of this conversation, there is no silver bullet. We got to expand the West Shore Express. We have to finish the expansion of the Staten Island Expressway. We need expanded ferry service. We got to fix the godforsaken R train in this, <laughs> you know, um, which, you know, you're talking to state Senate candidates about that too. And God forbid that the federal government could work with the state government and work with the city to together address a problem, yeah. um, which is at the core of it, infrastructure. I think we really do need to move beyond just thinking of infrastructure as transportation policy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Our roads, our bridges, our highways, our airports, they're crumbling and they, they need work. Infrastructure can be truly holistic. We could talk about smart grid systems um, to start addressing some of the consumption issues that we're having as we begin to develop. And unfortunately, we're still beginning to develop strategies to counteract global warming. You know, we can talk about new energy systems, um, solar, wind, a 21st century battery technology that can actually usher in these new energy systems. Oh, and how could I forget that part of an infrastructure plan could be actual protections against emerging cyber threats. Oh, yeah, absolutely. But what we can also have, one of the greatest problems in this country that not enough people are talking about, I don't think, is that we have 6 million jobs can't be filled. The unemployment level may be at 4.1%, but the labor participation rate is still pretty low. And there's these job openings. And the job openings are everything from tech to healthcare and many different things in between. In a truly generation-long substantive infrastructure plan, we can have training programs and apprenticeship programs built into it. So we're not just making our transportation systems the envy of the world. We're not just protecting ourselves against emerging cyber threats, but we're also filling that gap because supply is not meeting demand right now with these 6 million jobs. And imagine the multiplier effect. And the first thing I said at the beginning of this podcast was, I think the two most potent resources of the 21st century are infrastructure and human capital. With a robust infrastructure plan, we can actually address both. That's so exciting. That is beyond exciting for me. Um, But with looking at a Congress right now that can't even get their act together to pass a budget, we got a lot of work to do. Donald Trump ran talking about infrastructure. Yeah, and got a lot of people to support him because it's a no-brainer. It's a big part of the Bernie campaign too. Yeah, you know, they both talked about government negotiating drug prices. They both spoke about the opioid epidemic. They both spoke about the godforsaken carried interest loophole, which Democrats and Republicans have propped up for a generation now. They both talked about it and now no one's talking about it. No one's doing anything about it. So you got two people. One became president. Wilson, one almost became president. They both talk about the same thing and now no one's doing anything. Only in Washington, D.C. Oh, only yeah. only in this, only in that town. Um, but uh, I, I do believe that my campaign can help change that. Um, I, I do intend whether I'm, I'm blessed to, to win this election or not. These are things I want to dedicate my life to, to helping to fix. Well, thank you so much for coming in and talking thank to you. us, Max. This has thank been great. You. This has been the one of the highlights of the campaign. <laughs> uh, that I haven't had a chance to be this uh, in the weeds. Um, 
well, hopefully it's not your your last opportunity as well. Well, invite invite me back, guys. All right. <laughs> all right. Thank you so much, Max, for trucking out to Bay Ridge and talking with all of us. If anything in the interview aroused your curiosity, we'll be uploading show notes for Max and all the other candidates at RadioFreeBayRidge.org. You can also check us out on Twitter at at RadioFreeBR or on Facebook. Give us a like or a follow and reach out to us if you want to chat or just have a suggestion or a comment. And of course, if you want to learn more about Max, be sure to check out his website at MaxRoseForCongress.com or follow him on Facebook or Twitter at at MaxRose4NY. That's MaxRose, number four, NY. If you'd like to take a listen to the other six Democratic candidates in New York's 11th District, be sure to subscribe to Radio Free Bay Ridge on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Radio Public, or wherever you get your podcasts. We have only two more candidates left. Omar Vaid and Radhakrishna Mohan, coming up in the next week and a half. After that, I'm happy to announce we're going to give you a special roundtable discussion with local constituents as a wrap-up to this entire series, talking about what we heard and what we didn't hear from our candidates. So definitely keep an eye out for that as petitioning begins in March. And for those of you who don't know, petitioning is when all seven candidates begin making the rounds to ask registered Democrats to sign the petition to get them on the ballot. Remember, you can only sign for one candidate, so be sure to listen to all of our interviews and do some research on the candidates to see which of them you're most interested in supporting. And if you're really excited about one of them, or heck, even more than one, get out there and volunteer. Until then, stay free, Bay Ridge.